Well, good morning. Let us open our Bibles. Two. Can anybody guess? <laughs> if you don't say Ephesians, I don't want to talk to you. I'm kidding. Ephesians chapter 4. And this morning we are considering together verse 30. Verse 30. Let me read beginning in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Imagine this morning a toddler, little boy. He is standing at the base of the Statue of Liberty. And he is trying to jump as high as he can to touch the torch. Can you imagine that? Well, that's how I feel this morning. I'm that toddler. This is a very high and deep, wide verse in front of us. I need to make a confession this morning. It's a very particular one coming from a preacher, but I'm not sure I understand this verse as I would want to understand this verse, and neither do you. I can guarantee you that. Uh, there is deep mystery in this verse, and here's another confession this week. I was somewhat disappointed at how many of the commentaries and sermons that I read simply rushed through this verse. Just a few sentences, just one paragraph, and we move on. That's not right. For instance, one commentator from whom I have greatly benefited in the past simply said that our sins can deeply wound the spirit of God. And then he moved on. Moved on. It doesn't, it doesn't fit with everything else that the Bible says about God. How can it be possible that mere creatures like us can deeply wound the eternal God? Does that mean that the spirit actually goes through mood swings? Is it proper to say this about a perfect, unchangeable being? Suffice it to say that when it comes to this particular verse, we need to tread very, very carefully. My approach this morning will be as follows. I will give you three main headings, and you have those on your notes. First, I will give you a critical theological warning. This is a much-needed exercise as we take time to study this particular verse, and this will take up most of our time this morning. Hopefully, the reason for this will become clear as we move along. The second thing that I will give you after the critical theological warning will be this, a sobering practical exhortation. And then third, we will finish by looking at our firm eschatological hope. Good luck writing all those words. So a critical theological warning, a sobering practical exhortation, and finally, a firm eschatological hope. Let me give you the first one then. 
a critical theological warning. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. What do we do with this text? In a book titled Thriving in Grace, the authors begin one of their chapters by recounting the story, and I quote, of a little boy who was absorbed in drawing a picture as his admiring father watched. The father was curious. His son was so focused, so riveted in crafting his creative masterpiece. What could it be? What are you drawing, son? He asked. Without even looking up, the boy answered, God. Rather surprised, the father decided it was time to gently shape his son's theology. Well, son, no one knows what God looks like. Without missing a beat, his son replied, they will when I'm finished. <laughs> then the authors added this comment, and I quote, how typical of our innate tendency to reduce God to the limits of our own imaginations, end quote. How dangerously true this is. My friends, I guess there's no sense in denying the sad and awful reality and truth that the Christian life, and you have to admit this, I have to admit this, the Christian life is a life of constant, ongoing theological purging. Is it not? Even on our best days, our understanding of God is mixed with severe limitations imposed by the effects of sin upon our minds, and we must rid ourselves of them. Even our highest thoughts of God will never be high enough to do justice to his absolute and perfect greatness. How big is your God? I liken our study of the person of God to trying to reach the depths of the ocean with a fully inflated beach ball attached to your back. Good luck with that. What a struggle. Likewise, even with our greatest efforts, our progress in the knowledge of God is rather small, for God is an infinite being the depths of whom can only be comprehended by none but himself. Explain to me the concept of eternity. Why is everybody so quiet? Just explain it, right? It's that easy. Infinite, eternal. What was I saying? Something about making little progress, right? I have my notes, don't, don't worry, I'll find them. So we must be careful. We must be careful because our knowledge of God is always tainted by the remaining effects of sin. We must be very careful, very, very careful indeed that our thinking about God, that in our thinking about him, we never make of him an idol created after our own image. So here's the critical theological warning that I want to give you. I want to sum it up in a few words. Don't ever think that the Holy Spirit is like you. Let me explain. This particular verse, 
if not treated with the utmost care and reverence, can lead us to serious error regarding our doctrine of, of God. And just like that little boy with his drawing, we may be left thinking that we can confine God to the limits of our own imagination. According to Psalm chapter 50, verse 21, one of the trademarks of wicked thinking about God, of pagan thinking about God, is that pagans think that God is like them. Listen to these words. But to the wicked, God says, you thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and laid the charge before you. If I had to classify wicked pagan thinking about God in one word, it would be this, idolatrous. Wicked people think of God as though he is made in our image. They reverse the proper order. Ephesians 4.30, if left untreated, with care can lead to this dangerous error regarding God. Don't ever think that God is like you. Don't ever think that God is like you. He's not. You know why? Easy answer. Because he is God. Eternal. Immutable. Perfect. Self-sufficient. Blessed forever and ever. There is nothing you and I or anyone else can do either to add to his glory or take away from it. God is and always will be perfectly blessed. You know what the word blessed really means? Happy in himself. God's joy, God's delight, God's love, and God's perfection are and will always be found in himself and in himself alone. He is God, and he needs nothing or no one for his own eternal and perfect happiness. This is what it means to be God. So let me take you on a short historical journey. Let's do a little bit of history. Let's go back all the way to the 17th century. What happened in the 17th century in the Christian world? Well, some of the most important Christian documents were written. We call them confessions of faith. During this time, our Christian forefathers thought about and wrote down their biblical convictions concerning many important things, including God himself, who he is. And we would do well this morning to consider what they believed. Historically, Christians of the Reformed tradition have sought to be very careful when it comes to describing and defining who God is. Now, several of the major historical, historic confessions of faith reveal this truth. For our purposes this morning, I want to quote, I want you to listen to the words that I have uh, gleaned out of two very important confessions of faith. The number, number first is the Westminster Confession of Faith. You have heard about that confession. And the other one is the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. Two very important Christian confessions. This is how they described God. This is a quote direct from those two confessions. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God. A most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or 
Somebody said it here. Was it you, my wife? She's always helping me. Listen to how they describe. Again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to tell you again. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passions. Did you hear that? In the 17th century, our Christian forefathers, many of whom were Baptists like we are, they understood God as being without body, without parts, and without passions. These three words, body, parts, and passions, each has a theological name attached to it. God without a body is known in theology as God's spirituality. God's spirituality. God does not have a body for he is a spirit. The second word found in this confession, God without parts, is known in in Christian theology as God's, anybody know? Simplicity, simplicity. God is one in, in his very essence. He's not made up of parts. This morning, I want us to give attention to the third description of God found in the confessions, which is this, God without passions. The theological name for this is God's impassibility, which is in the title of the sermon In your notes, you can read the word in your notes. I would not be surprised if at least some of you looked at that title and your notes and thought there is a typo here. There's a typo. I must must assure you, however, that there is no typo in the title of this message. The word written is the word meant. And that is the title, grieving the impassable spirit. Let me take a quick survey. How many of you have heard the word impassable? Okay, a few of you. This is not going to be easy. This is not going to be easy. You know why? Because this is deep concepts. The word impassable simply reflects what Bible believing Christians have affirmed for centuries, for centuries. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the fact and the truth that God is not like us. God is not like us. He is God. The word impassable is a compounded word. Passable comes from the Latin word for Passion, passion, and it means suffering or passion. And if you add that little prefix of negation at the beginning of the word, then you get the word impassable, which means without suffering, without passions. In other words, God, the father, the son, and the Holy spirit is a God without passions. God does not suffer. But we also need to understand how they viewed and understood the word passion. The word passion was actually a technical term used primarily to speak. Listen to this. This is important to speak of that, which is provoked in us by an outside source. That is a passion. Whatever is provoked in you by an outside source. For example, when do you grieve? When something outside of you happens, you lose a loved one. That event provokes you, leads you to grieving. It is a response. Passion was conceived by the 17th century Christians as that which is reactionary. 
And this is what they, these confessions were denying of God. God doesn't have passions understood in that sense. Because God can never be acted upon or influenced by an outside source since he is perfect in and of himself. He never changes and he knows all things. Well, what about the Holy Spirit? Well, whatever you say about God the Father and God the Son, you can say about God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit never changes. He is immutable. He is always and forever the same. The Holy Spirit is perfect in and of himself. And the Holy Spirit knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. He can never be taken by surprise. And no amount of sin can make him less blessed, less complete, less holy, less perfect, and less loving. No amount of circumstances, no amount of human actions, no amount of evil, disobedience, or whatever else you can think of can change the essence of who God is. Nothing in the universe can change who God is. Nothing. Impassibility, that word, was defined by one theologian as the truth that God, listen to this, God does not undergo successive and fluctuating emotional states. Nor can the created order, meaning us, alter him in such a way so as to cause him to suffer any modifications or loss. Moreover, God is never the victim of negative and sinful passions as are human beings such as fear, anxiety, dread, or greed, lust, or unjust anger. Are you following me? To say that God is impassable is to deny of him all human passions and the effects of such passions, which would in any way debilitate or cripple him as God. So, let me take a pause here to think about something. I've been thinking all week about this. How do we explain all the instances in the Bible in which God is said to repent or to change his mind or to be grieved as in Ephesians 4:30. Well, in answering these questions, we need to consider two complex but necessary words. I'm going to give you some more words here that you need to think about and consider. The first word is a word that you know of is anthropomorphism. Have you heard of that word? Anthropomorphism is made up of two words, morphism coming from form and anthro from men, human form, human form. An anthropomorphism is when the Bible attributes human physicality to God who has no body. For instance, in Psalm 136 verse 12, we read that God brought Israel out of Egypt. How? With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. Well, what do we do about that? God doesn't have hands. He doesn't have arms for he is a spirit. And we are not Greek mythologists, right? We're Christian. This language is there to teach us finite human beings, not that God has hands and arms, but that God is powerful and that no one can stand against him. This is called anthropomorphic language. It attributes human physicality to God for the purpose of teaching something about his works and his power. Is that making sense? So for instance, in the garden of Eden, when God comes and says, Adam, where are you? What is, what, what are we learning? Is God really wondering, where's Adam? 
Those, those trees are thick. I can see them. No, there, of course, there's something else going on. When it says in, in Genesis that God rested from his work, it's not saying that God was exhausted. Why? Why do we know that? Because his power is unlimited. He's never exhausted. So we understand anthropomorphic language. Is, is God helping us understand something about who he is? Now, here's the second word that you need to be familiar with. The first one is? Yes. Yes, something about morphism. That's good. The second word is this. It starts the same way, but it, the second half is different. Anthropopathism. Why am I throwing these words out there? Because they are categories in which we need to understand the Bible. Anthropopathism, what is that? Well, this is when the Bible attributes human-like passions to God, who has no passions like we do. In, in other words, when the Bible says that God repented that he had created man, or that he repented that he had made Saul a king, or that he is grieved by our sins, etc., the Bible is teaching us not that God did something wrong or that his mood can be somewhat manipulated by mere creatures like us or that we can somehow change his perfect, blessed existence and joy in himself. If that were the case, I would be concerned because that would be no God. All those instances of God repenting or changing his mind, or relenting, or grieving, are there to teach us something of God's holy, just, and eternal disposition toward that which is evil. Consider John Calvin's comment on Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. What, what does it say in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6? Well, it talks about God repenting and grieving. This is what John Calvin says, and I quote, that repentance cannot take place in God easily appears from this single consideration that nothing happens, which is by God unexpected or unforeseen. The same reasoning and remark applies to what follows that God was affected with grief. Certainly God is not sorrowful or sad, but remains forever like himself in his celestial and happy repose. Yet, because it could not otherwise be known how great is God's hatred and detestation of sin, therefore the spirit accommodates himself to our capacity. End quote. Did you get all that? You probably didn't, because I didn't. Language accommodation. You know what those instances are of God repenting, God having an arm, a hand? You know what those are? Baby talk. Baby talk. We are toddlers. Baby talk so that we can understand something of God's eternal displeasure and hatred towards sin and evil. God does not live in small measures of time, always looking at us, wondering what we're going to do next and reacting to our every spiritual move. God, my friends, dwells where? In eternity. God dwells in eternity. Therefore, in all that God is, God is so eternally. Let me explain. Does God love? 
Yes. But God loves eternally and God loves immutably. Does God hate? He does. But God hates evil eternally and also immutably. And this will never, ever, ever change. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, when the Bible says, do not grieve the spirit of God, this is not to say that we mere earthly creatures somehow have the power to change the spirit's eternal, immutable, and perfectly blessed joy, which is found in the Godhead. We can't. Our sins cannot change the unchangeable God. Remember, only the wicked think of God as though he is like them. He's not like us. What is grieving? Grieving is a change. It is a change in our mood. It is a change in our disposition. But God never undergoes a change of any kind. Why must we affirm this? Because if God changes in any way, that means he's not perfect in some way and that he needs us in a certain way. But he does not. With or without us, God is always God. Consider the words of George Swinnock. He said this, and I quote, The self-sufficient God neither gains anything from our service nor loses anything by our neglect. He is above the influence of our actions. Our holiness adds nothing to God's happiness. And then he quotes from Job 22, verse 1 and 2. Can a man be profitable to God? It is, is it any pleasure in the Almighty if you are right? Or is it any gain to him if you are blameless? And then he continues and he says, As our holiness does not help God, so our sinfulness does not hurt him. And then he quotes from Job 35. If you have sinned, what have you accomplished against God? And if your, your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does God receive from your hand? And then Swinnock ends with these words. The weapons of unrighteousness might injure flesh and blood, but not the rock of ages. He is impenetrable, end quote. Let me remind you of the short but powerful question that Paul asked in Romans eleven thirty-five: Who has given a gift to God that he should be repaid? Let me ask you a question. Has the self-sufficient, ever-perfect, immutable God ever, ever benefited or suffer loss because of you, earthly creature? God's Perfect blessedness is dependent on nothing and no one. To compromise this truth is to compromise our entire doctrine of God. And as we look at Ephesians 4.30, keep in mind this theological warning. You must keep in mind this theological warning. Don't ever think that God the Spirit is like you. Now, having established the impassibility of the Holy Spirit and having reminded ourselves of the fact that he's not like us, then we need to ask the obvious question. If the Holy Spirit does not change, 
And if the Holy Spirit doesn't experience temporal reactions or passions because he is infinite, immutable, and perfect, how do we grieve him? What does that mean? Here comes the sobering practical exhortation. And these will not be as long as the first point. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, the theological warning that I just gave you serves a very specific purpose. What is the purpose? It keeps us from forming an idolatrous view of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. This is, this is mightily important. God never becomes anything. God simply is. We become God is. There is no becoming in God. God doesn't go from happy to being sad. He doesn't undergo mood swings like we do. His eternal state is perfectly unchanged. Let me quote here from a Dutch theologian, Herman Bavink. He said this, and I quote, the difference between the creator and the creature. And we talked a little bit about this in, in Sunday school this morning. The difference between the creator and the creature, listen, hinges on the contrast between being and becoming. All that is creaturely is in the process of becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving in search of rest and satisfaction and finds this rest only in him who is pure being without becoming. This is why in scripture, God is so often called the rock. End quote. So what is grieving the spirit? Grieving the spirit, therefore, is Paul's way of saying that the spirit's disposition towards sin has not and will not change more than a statement about what we do. This is really a statement about who the spirit is and he is holy. Don't do anything says Paul that you know is contrary to the eternal holy nature of the spirit. It does not matter when or how you sin the spirit's holiness and righteous anger against sin is always the same. There are two theologians that described the essence of grieving the spirit in the Christian life this way. And I want to quote, this is what they said. Divine grieving does not signify pain in God, but righteous anger and merciful love, righteous anger and merciful love. So let me address this from those two angles, righteous anger Merciful love. Number one, or letter A, the spirit hates sin eternally. Therefore, you must put it to death. Am I telling you anything new? I'm not telling you anything new. What we're doing is, is adding weight to the command. The Holy Spirit, just like the Father and the Son, does not live in a succession of times or moments. He lives in timeless eternity. Therefore, let's, let's think about this. Think about the eternity of God. There was never a point in eternity, if that can even be said about eternity, right? 
There was never a point in eternity in which the Holy Spirit did not possess a righteous anger against sin. I need to remind you that the Spirit of God has never learned anything. Never learned anything. Why? Because all knowledge, eternal knowledge, is found in Him. Therefore, there was never a point in eternity in which the spirit was not fully and perfectly aware of all the sins ever committed, including yours and mine for all eternity. The spirit has been holy. That is who he is. Therefore there has been an eternal wrath directed toward sexual immorality, perversion, lying, stealing, corrupting words, crude joking and evil thinking. If you think about it, even the spirit's wrath is immutable and eternal for it expresses God's unchanging holiness toward that which contradicts it. Therefore to grieve the spirit is to go against the eternal moral excellence of God. If you think about it, every sin has an eternal weight crushing it, it's called the holiness of God. So the call to holiness is a call to abstain from any word, any act, any deed, any thought that contradicts the eternal perfections of the spirit. But there is a second aspect and that is the merciful love. So letter B, we said in letter A, the spirit hates evil and sin eternally, right? Therefore you must put sin to death. What is the second aspect? Letter B, the spirit loves you eternally. Therefore you must walk in obedience. Consider with me the profound intimacy of the language employed by Paul in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy spirit of God. Do you realize the intimacy of that language? This is highly relational language. In March of this year, 2020, in March, I have technology talking to me. In March of this year, Ligonier Ministries put out a survey designed to reveal what evangelical Americans believe about many important issues. One of the statements in the survey was this, and I quote, the Holy Spirit is a force, but it's not a personal being. You know what the percentage was of evangelical Americans that agreed with that statement? 46% of evangelical Americans said that they agreed with that statement. The Holy Spirit is a force, but is not a personal being. You know who believes that? Jehovah's Witness believe that. This is not what the Bible teaches. The Spirit of God is not an impersonal force that hovers around you like some type of energy. The spirit of God is the third person of the Trinity who was will, has willingly taken up residence within you. And the word grieving in Ephesians 4:30 reminds us of the very personal nature of our redemption. The spirit loves you. My Christian friend, he truly does. And he doesn't love you from afar. He loves you deeply, truly intimately, and more incredibly still, he loves you eternally. And you know what the spirit's greatest work is? Oh, the Spirit's greatest work 
has been to bring you into perfect and unbreakable union with Christ Jesus, the Son of God. This is how much he loves us. He has taken up residence within your heart so that Christ may dwell in you richly. And this is what the entire Bible is about. Now let me finish with my third point, and we'll keep this, this short, a firm eschatological hope. What is eschatology? It's the study of the end times, what's coming, the future. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do you see here in the last, in the second section of this verse, Paul encompasses the entire salvation. You were sealed, meaning the beginning of salvation, for the day of redemption, meaning the end. All of it. Consider the words of prophet Malachi, through whom God spoke these words. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Notice with me the strong connection between God's promises and God's unchangeable nature. The spirit has not and will never, never, ever change. And it is not your faithfulness. It is not the size of your faith. And it is not the amount of great theological knowledge that you're able to accumulate what ensures that you will enjoy full redemption one day. But it is the, the unchangeable character of the spirit of God. This grieving of the spirit, meaning the eternal righteous anger of the spirit and the merciful love of the spirit will never change. Where does this find its ultimate expression upon the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? What happened on the cross on that cross upon which Jesus died? We see God's unchanging, eternal, righteous anger and merciful love displayed in a way that no one can fully understand. And through this righteous anger of God and the merciful love of God manifested on the cross, we are changed. God doesn't change, but we are changed. And a day is coming, says the Bible, in which you and I will forever be changed. The day of redemption is coming in which our redemption will be consummated and finalized. What the spirit started, he will finish. What's the guarantee of that? It's not you, it's the spirit. The fact that he never changes. Let me end on this sobering note. For those of you who are unbelievers, you may not, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you have rejected the faith. Maybe you are just wondering what this Christianity is about. Maybe you're listening online, whatever it may be. Let me, let me finish with these words. Don't think for a moment that on the last day, when you stand before God, don't think for a moment that God will change his eternal disposition toward your sin. He never will. Don't count on God changing his mind toward your unrepentant sin at the last minute. There are many people who are hoping on that. I hope God will forgive me. It simply won't happen. Your only hope is for you to turn from your sins today. Look to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins. 
Jesus died for sinners. And on that cross, we see the eternal righteous wrath of God and the eternal merciful love of God come together in the death of one person, the man Christ Jesus. Because there is salvation in no other name. So will you believe in him today? If you have believed in the Lord Jesus today or you have in the past or you have questions, please do not hesitate to let us know. I would love to talk to you about your eternal life in Christ. Would you play, pray with me? Father, we thank you for the depth of your word. We know that we haven't even scratched the surface. And I know that this has been an imperfect sermon. For we are indeed mere men seeking to swim and navigate an eternal ocean of eternal truth. But Father, I pray that you will take this imperfect sermon and apply it with perfect spiritual accuracy to each one of us. For that is the work that only you can do. Father, forgive us for the times in which we think we can create you in our image and limit your eternity to the confines of our own limited imaginations. And Father, help us to think more highly of you, knowing that we will never know you fully, but we rejoice in the fact that we can know you truly. And in these things, we are grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.